Before we listen to the remainder of this amazing interview, let's take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor. Did you know that each year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined? I'm not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance misuse and mental health, just those two. Those are our friends, our neighbors, our family members. They go to our churches, eat next to us at our favorite restaurants. They talk to us through our favorite podcasts. And those deaths are completely preventable. In the Choose Your Struggle podcast, Jay Schiffman, who is a public speaker and coach, talks about these types of issues by interviewing people with lived experiences on these topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery, and drug use and policy to help end stigma and normalize difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. This is a topic that is very close to Jay's heart because Jay has survived two suicide attempts and an overdose. Jay feels privileged because he has been given a second chance in a world where some people don't even get a first chance to change their lives and make things better. In a recent quote from Jay, he said that for him not to use his personal experience for something truly meaningful and good, that it would be a waste of his second chance. That's why he gets up every day to work, to help end the stigma and ensure that those who need help get the help that they need and that they deserve. Because we're in this together. Jay is very inspirational. And he is an amazing host. I guarantee that the stories you will hear will change your life and redefine your worldview. So, join Jay every Monday and Friday for the Choose Your Struggle podcast. The Choose Your Struggle podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. So, go check it out. Looking from the Hello, and welcome to another episode of Music and Therapy with Relationship Coach Kiana W. Mitchell. I am your host, Kiana W. Mitchell. Guys, I can't believe it. It is finally here. Today is our official name change episode, and I am super excited. We have an awesome interview today for you, and the interview is done with a guy named Jay Shiftman. He is the host of a podcast called Choose Your Struggle, which is an amazing podcast. So you guys, after you listen to this, go check him out. All right, I'm not going to do a lot of talking at the beginning. We have a long interview for you, but it's a good interview, and I'm excited for you to be able to hear it. So let us go right into the interview with Jay Shiftman from the podcast, Choose Your Struggle. Here's the interview. Hello, Jay. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. You are my third guest, so I'm really excited to have you here. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you have this amazing podcast. I've heard it. I love it. And so tell me a little bit about yourself. What made you want to start this podcast? 
Yeah, well, I would say the first thing is, is you know, it's an honor to be here because it's an honor to be anywhere where people want to have conversations about substance misuse, mental health. I mean, these, right. these, these topics are incredibly important. And unfortunately, we have to create these spaces because they're not topics that the average person is just okay to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the stigma around these things is very real. And and people who intentionally create that space for it to to be a honest and and uh, sort of idea driven conversation is one that I'm always honored to be a part of. So thank you for for doing that. I I started my podcast uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, actually now going on a year and a couple of months. And I did so because my background is in public speaking. And when the pandemic was sort of on the horizon, when, when you know, those people that, that knew better were saying, this is going to be a big deal as it ended up being yeah. uh, back in, in January of 2020, I started trying to brainstorm of ways that I could still have the impact that I wanted to have during this year. And my best friend is a comedian in, in Chicago. And in that period, he started a podcast. And I honestly said to him, like, I love you. You're very, very good at what you do. But if you can do this, I can do this. <laughs> um, so I started the podcast and I'm really lucky that it's taken off. I, I don't want to minimize, uh, minimize how much work it's been. I mean, I have worked really hard at it, but also people are hungry for these topics as you know, well, and, and that means that if you do work hard and you, you know, you put yourself out there and you have a little luck, you know, these things can take off. And, and I'm really, really grateful that, that mine has. Yeah. Because I know that um, some, like you said, there, is, there used to be a stigma and sometimes there can still be a stigma around mental health. And I talk about relationships. And so I think it's important for people who are in relationships and who may be married to someone or dating someone who has a mental illness or a substance abuse issue to know about what's going on so they can kind of help that person navigate what they're going through and work together. You know, I don't want people to be like, oh my goodness, what do I do? I want them to see the problem, know what it is and kind of know how to work through this and how to work together with this. Well put. And, and that's the goal. You know, it's, it, the more that we can help people realize that those who struggle with substance misuse or mental health issues are no different than someone struggling with a sort of more accepted ailment, right? You know, mm -hmm. nobody uh, thinks about kicking out their spouse if they get cancer. Right. Why is it that if they get, you know, they struggle with their mental health, it's like, well, maybe uh, they shouldn't be around me or shouldn't be around my kids and all this kind of stuff. And I don't, I don't want to discount the fear that is there because that fear for a long time was kind of intentional. There were bad actors trying to build up fear around drug users, around sub people who struggle with substance misuse, people who struggle with very extreme issues of, of their mental health. That being said, we can't just allow that and say, well, there's truth there, because in fact, there really isn't a lot of truth in a lot of the, the BS that's been built up around these, these communities. No, that's true. My husband, he used to work as a substance abuse counselor. And just from seeing how he dealt with his clients and the people that he worked with, you begin to see it from a whole different light. Because I grew up back like in the 80s, so they're just like the war on drugs and just say no. And they have all these scary commercials about the egg frying, like this is your brain on drugs, <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. So like you said, we were all terrified of it. And I know with me, it's like if I thought any drugs was like around me on college campus or something, I would not hang around those people. And then I hold my breath, like I can't inhale this stuff. You know, it was that kind of thing. And so when I saw my husband work with people who had substance abuse issues and, 
even though he wouldn't tell me everything they were going through because he couldn't because of the confidentiality. But you can see that these are real people and they're struggling with real issues. And some of them could be at the point of losing their kids or going through drug court. And it's like, once you think about it and you look at it, each person had a reason why they were doing what they're doing. It's not like they woke up one day and said, hey, I'm just going to be a drug addict. They usually had something that was traumatic that happened to them or something that they didn't understand how they deal with and this was the way that they chose to deal with that situation and so it made me realize that that's really well put you know i I love that you brought up uh dare um you know we were all taught dare in school right just say no and what's so sad is that we know now and it was probably known then that that was doing more harm than good um you know i think that the easiest way to explain that is that if you tell a kid you know if you smoke marijuana you're gonna die and then they go smoke with their friends and don't die well they're not gonna believe a single thing that you say from now on and so that's why there are people who do this work who are trying to encourage honest conversations about drug use the good and the bad right because you know we all remember um you know those those sort of tv moms who are telling the kids oh you shouldn't do dangerous drugs while having a giant glass of wine in their hand yeah we'll talk about a a double stigma you know or, or, or a double message there right so uh-huh. you know if if we talk about these things in an honest way you know if i have kids as a person in recovery i know that my my kid is going to be more likely to struggle with substance misuse. So if I tell them the good and the bad, like, you know, drugs are amazing. This is, you know, what I enjoy. This is what I don't enjoy. These were the things I used to do, but also, you know, you need to know I spent years struggling with, with substance misuse and addiction because of a multitude of factors, my genes, my place in the world, all this kind of stuff. We don't know the full equation. We know bits and pieces of it but we don't know the full equation why you and I can have the exact same experience and I may struggle with, with addiction and you won't, we don't know the answer to that yet. And so as long as we're okay with saying we're working on this, we're trying to find the answer, but we're not there yet. It makes it a lot easier to be like, why would you judge this person? You know? Yeah. Cause I know that in my family, the thing that kept me from experimenting with like alcohol and drugs is because I had people in my family who did that. And I saw the negative effects that it had on them. And so when I got to college and I was old enough to drink, I was like, well, there's alcoholics on my mom's side and my dad's side. And I was like, I don't know if that is something I would struggle with if I decided I may want to drink. So because I realized that and because at that moment I knew that I was the kind of person where you give me a bag of Skittles, I eat the whole bag because I'm like, I couldn't stop eating Skittles. <laughs> so I always said, if I cannot stop myself from eating a huge bag of Skittles and I just keep going and going, I was like, imagine what might happen if I decide to drink. So that's right. The thing that stopped me because I was just like, I can't even control candy. Like, <laughs> this, if I can't control candy, I cannot even try to do this because I don't know the side effects. And even with my daughters, I talked to them about drugs. They may even look it up and we go through the side effects, what could happen, what might happen, because I don't think scaring people works anymore. I think that at this in this day and age, we got to be honest with people. You have to tell them, okay, this is, you know, you may feel happy for a while. It may, you may feel good for a while, but these are the side effects. This is what can happen. The other day, my daughter, I know she used to tell me when she was younger, because she knew someone who smoked and she thought it was cool. So she was like, yeah, I think when I get to be 
21, I'm going to start smoking. I was like, well, you know, if you want to start smoking, I said, you should at least know what it can do. So we read things on it. And now she'll be, now when I talked to her the other day, she's 15 now. So she's like, you know, mom, I was thinking, I don't think I really want to smoke because I need my lungs. I can't afford to risk getting <laughs> lung cancer. But she made that decision on her own. And it was an informed decision and not one because she was terrified of what could happen or lied to about the side effects. It's just like informed. And she made her own decision from being informed. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to inform people and let them make their own decisions. And I think we should also stop demonizing drug use because it's like there are people who do worse things. People who are taking drugs usually are just hurting themselves and we need to help them with that. But I think the whole demonization of people who do drugs is totally wrong because I'm like, this is not even it. Like there are other things happening here. So we cannot judge or demonize someone because they're having a hard time coping with a life situation. A hundred percent. There was a lot of good stuff in what you just said. I, props to you for being a very uh, honest mom. You know, I mean, there are a lot of parents who struggle with that and think it's just easier for them to say, Oh, I'll just scare my kids not to do drugs. Well, that, that doesn't work, you mm -hmm. know, and Having those honest and, and nuanced conversations is much, much more uh, it's going to be much more successful, but it also is more difficult. So, you know, uh, props to you for doing that. And, and, and you make a very good point that. So I, I love that now cannabis is starting to get a lot of the recognition that it deserves. Yeah. What is so interesting to me, you know, I was arrested in 2005 for paraphernalia possession intent to sell all that kind of stuff right mm -hmm. and it was for having joints and i mean it was it was nothing it was nothing that i got arrested for and at the time i you know uh, people who i loved were like how could you do this all this you know all the stuff that right. we that we were used to hear and like those same people are now going to dispensaries and and getting getting the same thing that i was arrested for 15 years ago it's not that the it, the, the the item has changed at all it is literally the same thing in fact if anything it's more potent than what i was buying off a dude off campus my freshman year when i got arrested right yeah but the attitude has changed. This is now a thing that, you know, and you're, you're in the boardroom of some companies and you guys are sharing a joint to talk about your next big project. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I was, or 15 years ago, I was a criminal for, for wanting to enjoy cannabis mm -hmm. and it's night and day now. So I, I think that when you, when you look at it sort of with that perspective, it's easy to say, oh, we may be wrong about a lot of these things. And and if we were that wrong about cannabis, nobody ever came out and said we were wrong. It just all no, of a sudden was this haven't. thing that, you know, let's be 100 percent honest here. Rich white people were doing that right. wasn't being done when I was arrested 15, 16 years ago. Sure. So if we're able to say we were wrong about that or, or the country was wrong about that, maybe we're wrong about some of these other things. And that's why it's so important that you have uh, people like Professor Carl Hart at Harvard, who's doing a lot of work about trying to help people understand that what they were told about heroin is wrong, not yeah. saying that it's safe. No one's trying to say that these things are 100% safe. What they are saying is if you look at our policies, safety has never been an issue. If it no, was, nicotine, yet. cigarettes would not be legal. Exactly. If it was, alcohol wouldn't be legal. Those are the number one and number two most dangerous drugs the world has ever seen. Yeah. 
alcohol and nicotine, and yet they're legal. So you look at that and you say, okay, clearly safety isn't what we're worried about here. What are we worried about? And the fact is, and, and this, you know, for, for some people who don't know this history, the reason these drugs are outlawed is 100% because of race. Yeah. It is you take this back to the original drug laws in this country around the turn of the century through about 1930, which is when a lot of these laws were becoming uh, made and, and came into existence. And they were all targeted at one racial group or another. You know, the first laws were all about opium. It was smoking opium that was outlawed. Why? Because Chinese immigrants were smoking opium and the, the white people at the time hated Chinese immigrants. Then it was cannabis. Why? Because they decided that, that marijuana, which was in a lot of health regiments at the time, yeah. was being brought op- over the border in a different form from Mexico. And it was, was anti-Mexican immigrants. Then it was heroin. Why? Because the, for some reason they decided that heroin was being used by black people and and you know this country has always hated black people it got so bad that in the 19 teens white southern police forces which i know that's that's redundant southern police forces changed the type of gun that they were using because there was a a uh, idea going around that the the earlier model that they had which had smaller bullets was not strong enough to take down a black man on cocaine oh this wow. is this is this is not like, you know, oh, my God, this is no, this is they were open about this. Wow. This was like a, a national call to arms that policemen had to change the type of gun they were using. And that same gun is still used today. So if we wonder why police carry these big old guns on them, it's because their forefathers were terrified of black men using cocaine in the South. And here we are 100 years later and nothing has changed. No, and you know, it's funny because it's like I've heard before, like, you know how we hear that sometimes they say that people who are on drugs are like way stronger and that's why they have to use more force and stuff. And I just thought about that when you mentioned the thing about the guns and the bigger bullets, because, I mean, if you think about it, it's like, why would you be so much stronger all of a sudden? I think it maybe they're not stronger. Maybe they just may not feel pain, but still, I don't think all the extra force is needed to take someone down because they're still people and people feel things and I don't think you should ever overstep your boundaries like that and use extreme force to take somebody down to me that does not make sense you know what was so sad so you're 100% right there's no proof to this this Mm -mm. idea but also what was so sad was at the time it wasn't even true it was uh there was a study done in Florida right around this time Uh, this was about 1912 1913 and they found that 600 um, users of, of, of cocaine kind of came into this clinic. And this is where the study was done. Four of them were black. And do you know why only four of the 600? Because it was expensive. And black people at the time were being forcefully kept in poverty. So we could look at this and say, that doesn't make any sense. How can you look at a group that you have intentionally kept poor? And also say, oh, this group is misusing or, or using this this horrible drug that's very expensive to an, uh, an extent that we need to change our entire laws to try to stop this. It makes zero sense. Yeah, and the problem is you can't look at these things rationally. There was no rationality that went into this. It was complete and total racist fear that came from nothing other than white 
people being afraid of black people. That's where all of this came from. And so when you know this history, again, all of it is built on racism. In fact, uh, there's a guy by the name of Harry Anslinger, who was the nation's first drug czar. And he went on the floor of Congress and said that we needed stronger drug laws because uh, cannabis, or he said marijuana, makes the black man think he's as good as the... uh, let me rephrase that because he actually made it worse. He said think he, that, that marijuana makes the darky think he is good as white men. That was his quote on the floor of the U.S. Congress. Oh, wow. He then went on to explain that cannabis, marijuana, made white women want to sleep with anyone, including Negro jazz musicians. These are all public records. And oh, this is where our drug laws come from. And so when you understand this, you can say, huh. Maybe there's not a lot of truth to the ways we think about drugs. No, I agree. And I know a lot of it had to deal with money because money has been the thing that's always run the United States. And I think most of the laws that have been made had to do with money. Like you said, it had to do with race. And even when you look at like medical and everything, it's all about money. I do a lot. I like watching tons of documentaries. I'm like the documentary (laughs) queen or whatever i love documentaries so it was a documentary i saw i think it was called um it was about this guy named rick ross and he was in california and he was put in jail almost for life because of the fact that he was buying drugs from someone from nicaragua who the united states knew was selling drugs and they were giving him the money and the drugs because he was like an informant for them and he didn't get in trouble for any of this when everything went down but rick ross almost went to jail for his life but it's because he read, uh, he learned how to read and he somehow read this thing. He caught this, what was it? It was something in the law that said, it was a three strike you're out rule, but he found something where it says that it technically wasn't three strikes because he did something. So for some reason he had one conviction or he, something happened and it was more like a continuous thing. So it wasn't three strikes. It was like two because something he did was continued with something else. I have to watch it again, but it was something like that. So he ended up getting out of jail. But the whole point was like, why was it when the United States knew exactly what was going on? Because they were watching this whole operation and they knew what was happening. Why would he go to jail for so long? And the guy who was like their informant got away scot-free. And I was like, that is messed up. Do you know? So I, first off, I love that because Rick Ross's story came to light thanks to the rapper Rick Ross. And people yeah. started wanting to know about his his story. So um, and by the way, I know when we're recording this, Rick Ross, the rapper's Tiny Desk concert on NPR just came out like two days ago, and it's unreal. So go watch that. Oh, wow. Um, but so do you know what percentage of drugs that come into this country uh, are from from all over? I'm not just talking about, you know, South America from all over are are um, intercepted by police force, by by our drug, you know, our border patrol, all that kind of stuff. What percent? make doesn't make it into the user's hands i did i would think uh, probably a high number like maybe what, what do you think guess guess a number 75 percent. you think do you think that they find or they they take 35 percent? i think they probably take more than that so you got the numbers right it's three to five percent They only 95 to 97 percent of the drugs that come into this country find their way into people's homes and into users hands. 
what that says is our law enforcement has never stopped the war on drugs. It just has never happened. Unless you consider three to five percent to be, you know, success. But I would say that any other business, anything else, name it. If your success rate was three to five percent, you'd be fired real quick. Yeah, and yet our 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 government loves to say the war on drugs has been a success. And it doesn't make any sense because we see these things on the news. Oh, this huge drug bust. And then you take a step back and say, all right, so I see one of those a year from my local police force, yeah. right? And then you start thinking, okay, so they do all these little ridiculous things like pull people over and then, oh, I think I smell something and they get a little bit of weed. You know, you add that all up, it's three to 5% annually of, of the drugs. And so what there's, what that says is this is a failure through and through. But here's the thing. Their goal was never to stop drug use. In fact, uh, Richard Nixon, who we all think of as the guy who really kicked off the war on drugs, even though it had been going on for 50, 60 years beforehand, he makes it sort of federal uh, policy. The war on drugs becomes a thing when he gives it its name. His advisor, John Ehrlichman, who ended up going to jail for water, the Watergate scandal. In the years before he died, he kind of had a come to Jesus moment, and he was very candid about a lot of the work that he did on behalf of Nixon and sort of, um, I don't know if I, if I would say that he felt sorry, but he was at least willing to talk about it. And one of the things he said when interviewed was he said, look, it was never our goal to get people to stop using drugs. Our goal was to stop the people who were against the Nixon administration. At the time, that was the Black Civil Rights Movement, and it was the hippies who were against the Vietnam War. So what they did was, again, this is in his quote, they, they made it crazy illegal to possess cannabis, marijuana, which was associated with the hippies, and heroin, which was associated with the Black Civil Rights Movement. And then they criminalized and, and, and prosecuted those two things to such an extent that no one blinked an eye when they went hard after the hippies and hard after the Black Civil Rights Movement. Oh. So they, they, they taught the United States people to think of these things as this giant, scary monster in their midst just so they could go after these groups. He was very honest about this. And when you understand that you go okay the goal was not to help people stop using drugs it was to criminalize groups that our administration that our government didn't like and it was mostly progressives and black people so again you see throughout this entire history that the goals of these ideas was was never to stop drug use it was always to use drug laws as a tool against people the united states did not think of as desirable citizens and those were progressives and they were people that did not look like the lily white america that this country has always tried to be wow i mean it makes sense because even now you can see how progressives and democrats and like people like that were being demonized right now if they don't go along with republicans or conservatives so that makes total sense why they would do that and i heard something like that a while ago where they didn't like the black panthers so it's like well let's get them addicted to drugs and then we can make it sound like they're this terroristic group but no one talks about how Black Panthers were helping the people mm-hmm. in California, how they had food programs. They were the people who started this kind of stuff and they were doing all of this good stuff. And then all of a sudden they just turned and they just got them all hooked on drugs and then try to make sense that it's terroristic group and everything like that. Have you watched, have you seen the new movie, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah? It's fantastic. No, I'm gonna watch it this um, weekend. It's so good. And, and what I think is so amazing 
is that, um, yes, you're, you, you bring up the Black Panthers, which is a very, very important point. The Black Panthers were founded to protect Black citizens from people like the Ku, Ku Klux Klan, right? Exactly, yeah. Here we are 60 years later. The Panthers were destroyed by the U.S. government, yeah. right? It was perfectly legal for them to carry carry guns. Everybody carried guns, yeah. except until all of a sudden Black people did, and then we got gun laws in this country, right? So the U.S. government destroys the Black Panthers. In 2021, the KKK is still around. And if that yeah. doesn't show you how ridiculous this government has treated people, that one terrorist group, oh, we can't stop them. We've been trying for years. The other one, they got rid of in less than a decade. They were like, we don't like you. We're going to label you a terrorist group, even though, as you said, they're doing a lot of amazing things in their communities. They didn't like them because they were black men carrying guns and black women, too. I shouldn't, I shouldn't just say black men. They got rid of them in less than a decade. White men carrying guns, lynching. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan, were, I'm, I was raised Jewish. We were told to fear them. They were killing right. our ancestors too. The U.S. government could never do a thing about them. And it's because they never tried. It is yeah. the, the goal of the administration was just to get rid of people that they don't like, not just scary people. It's why we have such a big problem in this country with white nationalism and white extremism, because the government hasn't really ever done anything to try to stop it. But the minute it's someone else, you know, uh, that doesn't look like a typical American, they go after them hard and fast. I mean, we were in two wars in the Middle East yeah. because of one terrorist attack. Timothy McVeigh blew up a, a, a government building. Yeah. Eh. What are you going to do? No, I totally agree. It's like, even if you look at what happened on January 6th, how all these people got sucked, they didn't get close. Like, they actually got into the Capitol building. And then you see Black Lives Matter, they were marching, and all That's these right. police officers, like, surrounding the building. It's just like, they're doing peaceful protests, and you saw how they were dealt with. And then with the attack on the Capitol, everybody, they getting into offices, trying to kill people. They actually had this, they could hurt people. And they had like, they couldn't do anything. They had no police around. Like, what were they thinking? <laughs> so just to let you know, there is a yep. huge disparity when it comes to race and relation in this day and age, which is unfortunate. I, I've got my, my Black Lives Matter flag right here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, my wife and I went to a, a couple, uh, actually went to three. We organized one in our, our neighborhood. And, you know, I, we were really lucky. There was, there was no, never any police violence around us. But you're right. It's hard to watch those two things side by side and say, wait a minute. You know, you, you see these like images from Black Lives Matter protests where police are, are throwing people down. They're pepper spraying them, all these horrible things. Right. And yet when it's the white dude... <laughs> just like man go ahead go go on in we'll see you in there right i mean it doesn't make yeah. any sense yeah it's crazy my husband and i were talking about that the other day we were just like this is crazy and so that is why like i tell people my whole goal is to educate people and to let people know that you know i'm the kind of person where before i never really talked a lot about like race and relations and everything because to some extent i've kind of been kept away from a lot of um how can I put discrimination it's like I can I really can't count the times I've really been discriminated against and if I can it maybe it's been like five times I count on one hand but my whole point is like just because it hasn't happened to me a lot doesn't mean it's not happening to everyone else and it won't you know if any of us are being discriminated against myself included because you never know what the future is going to hold because of the way things are. It's just like, we all have to do something about it. And I feel like I told my kids, I'm like, we can no longer just sit silent and be like, well, you know, nothing's happening. 
and I've started to feel this way like a long time ago, like when Colleen Kaepernick got banned from the NFL just because the guy was kneeling. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, and I even stopped watching football for a long time because I still don't even watch it now, to be honest. I'm just like, if you are going to tell somebody they can't kneel, and if you're going to make their job dependent on kneeling and try to make it sound like they're not patriotic, when he explained over and over that's not the case and that's not what he was doing, my whole point is like, when did we become a country that forced you to be patriotic? And when did we determine being patriotic by how we respect or kneel to a flag? Like, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with how you be your country, how you're a good citizen, you know, those things. It has nothing to do with the flag. And so, yeah, I've kind of been over that whole thing for a while. I'm with you. I'm with you. And that's why I was so I was so proud of Mark Cuban, the owner of the, the Dallas Mavericks, when they, without telling anyone, just stopped playing the, the national anthem before games. And then he gave an interview and someone finally asked him, like, how, you know, it was like 15 games in the season. He's like, yeah, we just don't feel like we need to do that anymore. And the NBA was like, no, you have to. And it's because they're catering to a very small percent. And let's be honest, how many of those people are actually watching the NBA anyways, right? I yeah. mean, the, the people who are that strong, I, I'm a huge Boston Celtics fan, like diehard Boston Celtics fan, right? And uh-huh. we have a guy on the team, two guys, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who are unreal basketball players, but also really outspoken on, on civil rights and, and social issues. And during uh, the, pro- the protest last year, I, can't, I think it was Jalen Brown was asked by an interviewer, uh, so Jalen, what should we do? What's the answer? And he looked at him and said, man, I'm 23 years old. Why are you asking me this? There are people who do this for a living. I'm a basketball player, right? Like that's, and, and, and there was such a beautiful juxtaposition of this like white middle-aged dude asking this 23-year-old black dude, like, you tell me what to do. No, no, no. <laughs> like this is on us, right? Like I got black friends who are like, if you think you're tired about talking about race, I'm tired about talking about race. And at this point, it's not on all y'all. It's on us, the white people. This is our problem. We need to fix it. This is not, we can't just keep looking at black people. Like tell us what to do. It's our friends who are being stupid. We have to fix them. That is on us. No, you're right about that. And even with everything that's happened, I think that is, I know racism has always been here, but I think the thing that's made it more prominent was when we had those four years of Donald Trump in office because he was outspoken or racist. So it's like, if you encourage these things on a regular basis, then what do you expect to happen? It's almost like you're constantly playing with fire. You're constantly setting people off and you're talking about people in ways that dehumanize them. And I mean, the way he talked about everybody, it's like with me, I was like, okay, so he's attacking me both ways. First, he's attacking me for my race. Then I'm a woman. It's like it just went on and on and on. Like, And I think when you do things like that, and we look at the country now, like how could we not expect for this to happen? Like how could right. we not see that this is where it was going to lead to? I'm just thankful he didn't get like a second term in office because I don't think we'd be able to come back from that. <laughs> I don't think we would. What's so scary to me, you're right. I mean, he lowered the bar so much that progress at this point isn't good enough because we're still not back. Like, we're not going to get back to where we even were for a while, right? right? Like, during the campaign, this really startled me. You know, Trump was so overtly racist that it made lower that bar about, like, what was racism, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a moment uh, where Joe Biden was asked by a black reporter 
um, if he had taken a cognitive test, right? Because Trump was forced to take one. And so Biden is the same age. And they were like, you know, did you take one? And Biden got really pissed. And look, I'm not saying it's it's not okay that he got mad. Like if I was, you know, whatever, I'm sure I would get mad too. But yeah. his response was, why would I take a you know cognitive test? What about you? Did you take a drug test before you got here? Now here you have an old white man looking at a black dude in a, in a suit and, and you know whatever, and the first thing that comes to his mind is maybe you're on drugs. Yeah. Now that was a scary moment, right? For those of us who care about issues like like drug you know drug use and drug policy, because the only reason he was thinking that was that this dude was black. And so yeah. this story was went out ran, went around on Twitter and like that for about a day. But because Trump is so that times 10, yeah. it got forgotten, you know, because it was like, yeah, that's a horrible thing to say, but then there's Trump. And so yeah. when you have that, it's like Biden can get away with almost anything because at least he's not Trump. And that scares the crap out of me. Because no, right he's doing that. a lot of dangerous things already, you know, like that moment that showed like, wow, that was so overtly racist and anti those who use drugs and nobody bats an eye because, well, at least he's not Trump. No, you're right about that, because I'm just going to be honest. He was not my first choice. Per, he was not the person I wanted to vote for. He really was not. But it, it, when it, the way it came down and I, I guess I was to be I was voting strategically like. I wanted someone totally different. I, I, I liked Elizabeth Warren. I really did. But I knew they were not going to get behind her. I knew they were not going to vote for her. And because I knew that, and I knew what we had at stake, Trump staying in office another four years, when we came to like the midterm elections, I didn't vote for her. I liked um, the guy for the progressive, Howie, I forgot his last name, but I liked him too. But I knew he was not going to win. So I didn't vote for him. And so when I was like, I told my husband, I was like, whoever Democrats get, I'm just going to vote for that person. And that's what I did. But I did that because I felt like I had no choice. It's like, if I don't vote for him and too many people vote for Donald Trump, then he's in. And I can't do that. I was like, it was almost like you had to pick the lesser of the two evils. And Biden was it. And it's funny because on the news, they even said that the reason he won is because not because the country was behind him to say, but because we didn't want Trump. So it's like we're voting against him by voting for this person. That's what it came down to. It's not because we loved his policies, liked, I think that we probably wouldn't have voted for him if we had another choice. But it was just like, who do we, like you said, the bar was so low. Like, who do we have? Like, <laughs> what do we do? So I feel you on yeah. that. I am just, I'm getting real tired. I'm only 34 and I'm already tired of voting for the least, you know, least worst person. Same the here. one time that I felt passionate was about, you know, Obama's first term, but it, it, it's, it's, it's gotten to the point now where I honestly feel that the people who are saying, you know, screw the politics, they're going to keep doing the stupid shit they're going to be doing. Let's do the work ourselves. Right. Those are the people that I admire. You know, yeah. I had a guy on my podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. And his name is Peter Kriken. He is um, Scottish. And he is a guy who, who used, like me, is in recovery. And he worked in, as an outreach coordinator for a health organization. And he got tired of seeing these people he know die from overdose. And right. so he was doing things like advocating the government to open. And, of course, they would go, oh, we'll, we'll study the issue. And, of course, nothing ever happened, right? Yeah. So what did Peter do? He bought a van. 
and started driving around and allowing people to use their drugs in his van. And and he would have test strips there. He would have um, Narcan, the anti-overdose medication. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a defibrillator, all this stuff. And he brought nurses along and just started doing it himself. He got arrested at one point for, of course, this isn't legal. And he said, I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it. And in that way, he forced the politicians to come along with him, right? All of a sudden, overdoses started dropping in the city, and they couldn't anymore ignore this issue because he was just saying, screw you. You can keep arresting me. I'm going to keep doing this because I believe in saving people's lives instead of fighting over the BS you're fighting over. And finally, he got them to start you know, coming around to this issue. Those are the people that I admire, the ones saying, let's just do this and we're going to force them to deal with this. Because if we wait on the politicians, nothing's going to happen. No, I agree with you about that. That's why I think we need to be more involved in like our local area, local elections. And even aside from that, like what can we do as people to help with a situation? It's like you see something that's wrong. I think we should, like you said, go work on it, try to fix it. Because if we just sit around and wait, our kids, our grandkids, they're going to be dealing with the same issues. And I was like, I do not want my kids or my grandkids to have to deal with the same world that we currently have now. I want it to be better for them. And the only way that can happen is if we do something about it and we say something about it. Like, that is one of the reasons why I started my podcast, because I saw, like, there were relationship issues. And once you think about it, none of us are ever taught how to have relationships. If you had good parents who had a good relationship, then maybe you kind of got some sense of what a healthy relationship was like. But the majority of us did not have that. So it's like we're thrown out there, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, get married. But no one told you how to do this thing. And so I just figured, well, you know, if I can tell people from my experience and let them know that it's hard work, but it can be done, then I was like, you know, maybe I can help one person through the learning curve instead of just letting them figure this out on their own. Because Sometimes you just have to do that. You just got to get out there and do something. Well, I love that. And and I, anyone like, I, I say a lot when I speak, why is it that I had health class, you know, where I learned about, you know, what I put in my body and sex ed, I had PE. I didn't have mental health class. I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't have honest conversations, you know, drug class. Right. And we're just thrown out to the wolves and say, eh, go get it. Kind of like what you're saying about relationships. And what's so scary, again, with the relationships in mental health is that it's still stigmatized to talk about it when it doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? You know, there was a joke on um, the show Parks and Rec where, where Aziz Ansari's character said, you know, guys never have to talk about why the relationship didn't work out. All he has to say is the girl was crazy. Hey, what happened to your girlfriend? Oh, man, she was crazy. And that's it, right? That's yeah. it. That's all a guy has to say. He never has to be like, you know, I wasn't a very good boyfriend. Or, God, our, our, we just didn't work. I didn't like this about her. She, I didn't communicate well. Those conversations don't have to happen. And if you do try to have that conversation, a lot of people get real awkward about it. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, because then like they don't, they don't want to think about that for their own relationship. Well, what if I'm not doing that? What if I'm whatever? So if we can help people have these conversations in a safe and educational way, you're going to help a lot of people and a lot of relationships and a lot of, you know, um, friendships and all that kind of thing in the process. So, you know, thank you for your work. And, and we need more people doing this kind of thing. No, I agree, because I think that, like you said, when you talk about things, you you have to face them. It's easy to pretend that things don't exist. And I think that's the reason why sometimes, you know, 
you hear about things and you just make up an excuse because it's easier to have an excuse because if you have an excuse, then usually it's the other person. It's never you with an excuse. But right. when you sit down and actually explain what happened and think about these things and do some self-assessment, then you're like, wow, I wasn't as great as I thought I was. And, oh, I made some mistakes. But it requires you to look at yourself. And who wants to do that? Because then it's a lot of work because then you have to change your behavior instead of blaming somebody else for their behavior. Yeah, and and not only that, you have to you know come to terms with this fact that maybe you're not as amazing as you think you are. Yeah. And when so many of us are crazy defensive about our personalities, about who we are as people, any sort of pinprick to that can be terrifying, right? And that's why going back to the topic of race, that's why we as white people need to be having these conversations because it's on us. It's not black people's fault that we've been horrible to them forever. It's our fault. But if we can't face that, if we can't admit that we are anything less than perfect, it's why even though as a person who works hard on this, if somebody tells me I'm not doing something right, the first response my body has is like anger or fear or whatever. And then I have to say, stop it, because our brains are so defensive of us as a person, because, well, what if I was wrong about that? Is that possible that I'm wrong about everything? Right. Am I really a bad person? Am I a bad husband? Whatever. And so you have to overcome that and say, it's natural that you're feeling defensive. It's natural that you're feeling fear. Let that go for a second. Now let's actually have this honest conversation. No, it's true. Because I, like you said, I know like when people criticize me or something, like you said, I get frustrated. I get upset. Like, how dare you say something about me? But if I take a step back, and look and like well Kiana you know even though you felt that way maybe the way you responded was not right because just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean your reaction may have been right you may have a right to your feelings but you have to where you have to pay attention about your reactions and that's why I tell myself all the time I'm just like you have a right to feel the way you do but you don't have a right to hurt someone's feelings or talk down to them or degrade them because you're upset about something like I can control how I react to a situation And so that is what I tell myself. And, you know, that is how I work through things. Because even though I have a master's in psychology, I feel like my psychology, I use it a lot to help myself. Because it's just like, now that I understand things, I can self-assess and catch myself like, nope, stop, calm down. (laughs) This is not how it is. (laughs) Because it's easy to get defensive. When you get defensive, like you said, you never get to the problem because you're too busy like working on your own ego, you know, getting yourself together. When the person may not even be attacking you. They just saw a flaw or so something that they're concerned about. So it's the issue that's a problem, not the person. And they're not always attacking us, even though sometimes that's hard to come to grips with because I know we all as human probably struggle with that. And, and that's exactly. And that's why the, uh, what they call the shit sandwich when you're criticizing someone works so well, right? You tell mm-hmm. them something that they, that you like, or it's a positive, then you tell them the negative thing. And then you tell them another positive because, because it's a way to sort of disarm them at first and then leave them feeling good too. And then they can walk away from that and go, okay, you know, that was so nice that they like these things about me. You know, maybe I do need to work on whatever the case is. And so it's hard to do that sometimes, right? Because, you know, mm-hmm. as someone like you, I'm like, I'm about my business. If somebody screws it up, you know, I- I'm going to be like, yo, you screwed this up. But if you stop for a minute and be like, all that's going to do is leave them defensive. And if you can be like, hey, you're doing a really good job on this. This one seems to be a struggle. Can we talk about that real quick? Oh, and also, by the way, that one is really great, too. Then they're like, OK, I'm much more open to having this tough conversation because I know that they don't hate me as a person. I know that right. they don't disapprove of me. You know, my all of my work. It's just this one thing. 
No, that's true. And I try to do that. Even with my kids, I try to do that. Like, oh, this is great. You did this good. Okay, you really have to work on this because this has not been done. But you did this okay. You know, this is great. <laughs> like you said, it's just about learning how to deal with people. And for me, it came about because I, was, I realized I didn't talk to people as kindly as I thought I did. Like, in my mind, it sounded amazing. Like, oh, I'm being so kind. But then my husband like that. My husband be like, "That is so rude, Kiana. Why would you say that?" And my kids like, "Ouch, mom!" And I was just like, "What? What?" But now I see that it sounds nice to me, maybe, but it's not always that nice. And if you throw a little shade on it or criticism or whatever it is, it's not nice at all. But I guess for me, it made me feel like, "Oh, I'm saying this. I'm saying it in a nice way." But it wasn't nice. So this comes down to the point of realizing if you can't say it nicely, maybe you shouldn't say it at all. And if it's something that needs to be said, you need to figure out a way to say it in a nice way where the person can understand. Because it's not what my mom used to always tell me. Kiana, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. And I see that now. Like, it's not always what I say. It's just how I say it. It doesn't have to be said with a lot of meanness and criticism and whatever. And it doesn't mean that I'm not being real as a person because I am. But just because we're being real with people doesn't mean we have to be mean or evil. <laughs> you know, I just think we use yeah. that sometimes as a facade like oh i was just being real like no no you're just being me <laughs> that's yep. what that is yep and um making me think of the old Chappelle show sketches where when keeping it real goes wrong and it's always <laughs> you know it was always him getting his ass kicked in, in all of the all of the sketches <laughs> yeah and it makes sense because it's like you can say things and sometimes people just react right i mean they're reacting yep. that's a, in a way that's appropriate because it was something you said or whatever and I, you just got to realize it's one of those things where it's like, we are not perfect. None of us are. So I'm not going to always say things the correct way. You may not say things the correct way, but we have to know ourselves well enough to be like, you know what? Maybe you went too far. Maybe you should apologize. Maybe you need to make amends. Like, because even if we mess up, like we can always apologize. I even apologize to my kids at times when I think I did something that was too harsh with them. I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And then of course they're like little kids. And it's like, you're right. You shouldn't have. And I'm just like, yes, you're right. Mommy made a mistake there, but I plan to do better by not doing such and such and such, you know? But I mean, it's just something that you have to learn because kids are people too. We can't just run over all over them <laughs> and treat them any kind of way either. So yeah, I totally understand. So let me ask you, you mentioned a lot about how you used to be on drugs and everything. So I guess my curiosity is like, what was the thing that made you turn to drugs? Like what happened? Yeah, so my my story is not the one that a lot of people are used to. I uh, got started with substance misuse and eventually addiction when um, I was a teenager, and, and I was diagnosed with ADHD as a preteen and put on ADHD medication. And mm -hmm. then a couple of years later, um, you know, basically what happened was you take uh, puberty, which we all remember is a very difficult time, yeah. and you add – uh, you know, these high levels of chemicals that I was on for ADHD. And then you take in the fact that, you know, I have struggled with issues of mental health most of my life. And those, you know, th those aren't big deals. They are, they are things like um, uh, anxiety and depression right. and uh, OCD. Right. And mm -hmm. so you mix all of this together and it's kind of a perfect storm. 
And unfortunately for me, my therapist, who, who helped create this perfect storm by putting me on this medication for, for ADHD, yeah. saw this and said, oh, those are signs of a bigger issue. And that bigger issue is bipolar disorder. Now, bipolar is a pretty serious diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, and, and unfortunately, like many people, I didn't get a second opinion, and right. that happens a lot with mental health, where you know, um, if you're given a pretty serious uh, diagnosis of, of physical health, of course, we all go get a second opinion, third opinion, maybe, maybe even a fourth or fifth, but with, with mental health, we don't. We just take our therapist's word for it, and, and that's something that needs to change, but this was in the late 90s. And when he told me this, you know, my family, we went, okay. And so we kind of kept an eye on that for a while. And then eventually he started treating me for that too, because these signs were getting worse. Right. Now, of course, I know now these were signs of, I was, you know, misuse of these, of these drugs. They were, I shouldn't have been taking them, but, but in his mind, I not only should I have been, but I needed them. So fast forward to my late teens, early twenties. And by this point, I'm on five or six different medications for, um, for the, the bipolar disorder, for for ADHD, and none of it is going well, right? I mean, I'm I'm not uh, my 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 conditions are getting worse instead of better, and not mm-hmm. only that, um, you know, after a couple years, uh, half a decade of this, I've been told that I had this condition and it was getting worse instead of better and so it's kind of understandable to say well of course you lost hope right after five plus years of being treated this way and just watching your life get progressively worse so in 2009 uh i when i was really at my worst i wasn't you know if i didn't take a handful of these drugs the minute i woke up uh i i would start going through withdrawals i was taking what was supposed to last me a month uh, in about two weeks maybe a little less and that's the summer where I, I gave up. I attempted suicide twice. And the second time I overdosed and I, a cop showed up at my door. My friends called 911 and what happens in the United States, a cop showed up at my door mm-hmm. and I was handcuffed and led out of my house while experiencing overdose. I was slammed oh, into wow. the side of his cop car and then thrown in the back. He treated me like any criminal. Oh, why? Uh, because that's what our cops do in this country. Um, yes, you know, there are a lot of stories like mine. It's really sad. Um, so I was taken to the hospital where I spent the night handcuffed to a bed. And then the next day I came to, I was like in and out of consciousness this whole time. And I came to in a lockdown unit uh, at another hospital, uh, you know, the kind of place where I didn't have a belt or my shoelaces and I had to shower mm-hmm. with the door open. And I was there for three weeks. And then was released to my parents who sent me to what we would have called a mental institution uh, 50 years ago, but now we say long-term care facility, whatever you want to call it. And I spent three weeks, three uh, months there. And it was during this time that I started to realize my struggles didn't look like all the other people who had bipolar disorder. You know, uh, I was like, all right, I don't identify with what they are going through now there were people there struggling with addiction. And I went, Oh, Oh, that I recognize. Like that looks just like what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And so I went into my in-house therapist's office and I said, I want to get off of all my medication. And he said, no, he said the only way he would approve of that is if I agreed to get off of everything and then start back over again with new drugs. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to take some time for the first time in over a decade, see what my body was like without any drugs in it. And um, 
he said no. So I left. I, I was there against my will, but I wasn't court ordered. So I was allowed to check myself out. And I went to live with my grandmother who let me go through detox in, in her um, in her house. It took me almost four months. Uh, it's called wow. step down detox for your listeners who don't know. That's where you take a little bit less every couple of days um, because the combined withdrawal of all these medications I was on would have literally killed me yeah. uh, if I just went cold turkey. So I did that for almost four months. And then in the spring of 2010, finally had nothing in me for the first time in over a decade. And that's when I sort of restarted my life. And it took me, I would say, a solid five years to really heal from this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then is when I've been, you know, advocating and speaking and doing the podcast and all that kind of stuff to, to make sure that people hear these stories and that people who have other similar stories get to tell their stories. And we start changing the way people think about addiction, about substance misuse, about uh, drug use at all, about mental health. You know, all of these, the only way we end the stigma, the only way we start educating around these topics is by people hearing our stories. So uh, that's why I do what I do. That's amazing because I used to, uh, for eight years, I worked for the state of Alabama as a rehabilitation counselor. And so what I would do, I would work with students who had mental illness or some kind of um, physical disability. And there were a lot of kids who did have to go and be remanded to a psychiatric hospital. But the crazy thing about it is that all of them had the same diagnosis. And from what I've read, when it comes to like bipolar disorder, it's like, it's something that was rare at first, but now it seems like to be the thing that everyone seems to have. And then I started looking at all the things that they give kids for like ADHD and stuff. So, I mean, it's no surprise that this stuff would happen. And it's almost like we're setting our kids up to take drugs and depend on drugs in the future when we do these kind of things instead of teaching them different ways to handle and cope with life situations. That exactly right. I mean, that's literally what happened to me is that my brain started to associate any bad feeling, any bad thought with taking pills. Right. And, you know, this is an epidemic. Uh, so a little, uh, some, some data. When I was born in 1986, there were roughly 350,000 young kids that were treated for ADHD in the United States. By the time I was diagnosed in the late 90s, just a decade later, uh, that number had blossomed to 2 million young people. And now, now that number is almost 5 million young people in the United States. So, of course, there's going to be side effects. They know there's side effects, but they a lot of these people think that they're they're worth it. Right. And the issue mm-hmm. is our brains do, do not differentiate. Now, of course, something like treatment for ADHD is better than if I was just snorting cocaine in the bathroom at 11. Right. Of All course, right. that's true. That being said, our brains don't differentiate in how it responds to high levels of chemicals. So taking high levels of ADHD chemicals is still taking high levels of chemicals. And when these are young brains that are changing and growing, especially during the years of puberty, when our body is also really rapidly changing, of course, there's going to be side effects. And what's so scary is instead of saying, maybe we should not be putting so many kids on medication so early, we are saying like, like in your situation, these kids all have serious mental health issues. And that just is not the case. Now, before your listeners say, oh, it's just anti-medication, that's not the case either. I do think a lot of these pills can help people. The problem is 
you cannot tell me that five million children in this country need these medications. I just do not believe that. What you can tell me is that some of them do and other ones do not fit into our antiquated education system. It, it, it's a lot easier to drug a bunch of kids than it is to change the way we teach and the way we organize schools. And there's a really fascinating article about this called, um, I think it was the drugging of the American boy. And it's all, and they called it that because it's like 80 something percent or 70 something percent of those who get diagnosed with ADHD are young boys, not young women. And, and it's because the way we have adapted no longer fits this education system that was built around the harvest, right? That's how Mm -hmm. antiquated this, this thing is, but we can't change it because, you know, it's big business at this point. So instead of trying to tackle that, we just have this new industry that's really an old industry and that's big pharma. Yeah. I was watching this documentary. Um, I forgot what the name of it. If I can remember, if I remember, I'm going to put it in the show notes so people can see where what I'm talking about. But it's about this guy, his name was Chris, and he, his brother ended up dying from taking drugs. He did a documentary before called Bigger, Stronger, Faster that talked about steroids. And oh, prescription thugs, that's what it was. So he was talking about how people are able now to see all this information on TV about what they could have, and they're able to go and talk to their own doctor about things on their own. But he's just like, some things that are natural, like if you break up with someone, it's natural for you to feel depressed or it's natural for all of us to have these issues. The only time it becomes unhealthy is when it goes over three to four months, but it's okay for people to feel depressed or sad or have anxiety. It only becomes abnormal when it goes for an extended period of time. But because of the way society has made it you know, set up, we're made to believe that, oh, if I feel anxiety, I need to take something. But that may not always be the case. Sometimes it's just like, normal especially if it's situational you may not even have a problem you're just going through normal life and feeling normal emotions yeah and and i think that's so important to 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 point out that we have sort of come to fear pain in any of its form yeah and and that's where a lot of people point to the rise of what we will call the opioid epidemic is people you know for a long time doctors were were taught that they had to treat what they call the quote unquote fifth vital sign which was pain Mm-hmm. And if someone said they were in pain, you kind of didn't ask questions. Okay, you know, how can I treat this pain for you? The, right. the problem is sometimes pain is avoid, unavoidable. You know, I'm perfect example. As we're recording this, I've got a crink in my neck and my shoulder because I've been, you know, at my computer editing all day and all day yesterday. I'm a little stiff. I'm a little sore. If I went to my doctor and was like, get rid of this pain, he could send me to physical therapy, which would cost probably hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, or he could say here for $12 copay, I can give you this bottle of opioids. 90% of the people in this country are going to say, great, give me that bottle of opioids. And that's where this, this came from. So now they don't, they don't treat that or they don't, they don't teach pain as the fifth vital sign anymore, which is good because we have to be okay with the facts that our bodies are not perfect. They're not fine tuned machines. We are going to be in pain a lot of the time. That just is part of life. Now, of course, if you're someone who lives with constant and debilitating pain, you deserve opioids. You deserve the best painkillers that if, if, if you're barely getting out of bed, you deserve every tool at your disposal to try to feel better and lead a better life. But for the rest of us, if I'm just a little stiff, Go stretch. Go take an Advil. I love CBD. I think CBD is wonderful. Try some CBD. Don't go to your doctor and say, man, my back hurts. I need some opioids. Right. 
No, it's true. I remember in 2009 when I had my youngest daughter, um, I was feeling sore afterwards. But of course, because I just had a kid and they wanted to prescribe me like Oxycontin. And I was like, no, I think I'm good because I knew what the problem was. I just had a child. Of course, I'm going to feel pain. I'm going to be sore for a few days. But I didn't think I needed to have such strong medication for something that I knew what the problem was, you know. So I declined. I didn't take it. But if they, you know, but this is what we do. It's like we just give people pain medication to try to ease the pain when you sometimes I'm like, sometimes we just got to work through pain. We got to live with it for a minute, especially like you said, if it's not debilitating and it's not something where it's constant pain that we have, like you just have pain sometimes and it goes away. <laughs> it does. We don't give it a chance to go away on its own or naturally because we're always trying to right. make it get done faster and cure whatever the problem is. Yeah. And you know, when it comes to mental health, that can be incredibly scary. I, um, I went on a ride along right before uh, COVID hit with an EMS driver here in Charleston, South Carolina. And this person is their mental health special. So that's why I went on. I, I, I got a chance to ride with her and see what a day was like for her. And throughout the day, we went to a lot of calls, but three of them were uh, suicide. People called people call because someone was, was saying they were going to commit suicide. And what was so scary is that all three, you know, there was, it was a older guy, a younger guy and a young, a, a teenage girl, completely different people. They all had one thing in common. And that is they were taking high levels of benzodiazepine or antipsychotic medication without undergoing concurrent behavioral work with a therapist. So they had all gone to see someone to seek help for, for depression, for whatever the case is. And instead of saying, let's work on this, let's give you some better tools. Let's make sure that you have, you know, good uh, mindful practices, whatever the case is, there's a lot of tool, tools in that toolbox. All of these people had the same experience where they went to someone needing help. And instead of helping them, they gave them just pills, wow. nothing else. And so what happens when that happens is you don't have anything, nothing gets fixed. Right. You just have, a, you're, you're taught, you reach for this pill. And what's so scary is that all of those pills, it says it on the bottle, they have the same side effects. They mm -hmm. all uh, show with rises in suicidal ideation. So it's not surprising that all three of them ended up calling that day because here they are things, something bad happens. They don't have any other tools. They've been taught nothing else. As we talked about earlier, we don't go to mental health class yeah. and they actually sought help. And the help they were given were these pills that can cause you to commit suicide. So again, we can't be so quick to turn to the pill. We have to be willing to work with people and to help people. And then if pills are also needed, fantastic it's right. another tool in the toolbox but if you treat it as the only pill we're right. going to keep having problems no that is so true i totally agree with everything because if you listen to like you said a lot of stories and a lot of things people tell you about how they got addicted to drugs and things that happened it all started with them having some type of mental illness they went to get help and this is what happened they were prescribed pills to just take care of the situation instead of maybe doing some counseling at first and talking about things and then seeing if they still needed it, then that, because I do believe like medication is effective, but it's medication along with therapy, not just let's right. medicate you and call it a day and we did our job. That's not how that works. It's medication and therapy. Right. And you have to make sure the person needs the medication, but you got to do therapy first. It's one of those things. So I totally agree. 
So in a situation where there's like maybe a husband and a wife who are struggling with this issue, whether it is substance misuse or mental health, what would you advise them to do? What kind of advice or plan of action would you give for them to take? Oh, well, first off, I, I'll say right off the bat, my I know it's hard because I've been in that situation, you know, um, I know it's hard, but if you take a step back for a second and say, it, would I say what I'm about to say, or would I do what I'm about to do if my partner was suffering from cancer? Yeah. Odds are the answer is no, right? You're not going to yell at them. You're not going to scream at them. You're not going to, you know, like we talked about on the way in, say something like, well, you shouldn't be around the children or some, you know, these really harmful things, right? Mm-hmm. So first off, use that lens. Second, Try to find some patience and remember that you love this person and that, yes, you are going through a traumatic experience, too. And we'll get to that in a second. But this person is suffering in a way that you cannot comprehend. You know, you have no basis for understanding for what this person is going through. Right. If you can remind yourself of all of that, it's a lot easier to then say, okay. I need to find it in me to be patient, to be understanding and be loving, right? So so that is the most important thing you can do. Now, the second thing is remember that you also are going through a traumatic experience. Having a loved one experience a mental health struggle or a struggle with substance misuse and addiction, whatever, is traumatic for everybody. So get yourself a therapist. I work with so many clients who, you know, the mom will reach out to me because the kid's struggling with addiction or whatever the case is. And I go, you know, are you seeing anybody? This is very hard. Oh, I don't need to see someone. I'm like, no, you do, because your inability to process this is going to affect them as well. Perfect example. I, I was working with a client not long ago, and the mom actually was the one that reached out to me, right? And she couldn't take her son's uh, drug use anymore. And it was a whole thing. And um, the mom was so high strung that she didn't realize the ways that she was hurting her son and making it harder for him. Mm -hmm. And while we were working together, she was cleaning his room because he had moved back in with them due to his struggles with addiction. And she found a needle behind his dresser. Now, he didn't know it was there. This was from years ago. It fell off the back of the dresser. It was just, you know, just old trash, right? His mom, without asking him anything, just flipped out and kicked him out of the house, right? So in that moment, put yourself in the kid's shoes for a second. You're broke because you haven't had a job because you've been struggling with addiction, right? Now, at the time, he was actually in recovery. He was on on buprenorphine. He hadn't used in a while. Now he's homeless. He can't afford his buprenorphine prescription, What's he going to do? He's going to go down the street. Heroin's 10 bucks, you know, whatever the case. He's going to get himself a hit. And of course, that's what he did. He went and bought heroin and relapsed. Now, the mom didn't want him to do that, but she couldn't control herself enough that she unintentionally caused him to go through a relapse. Now, later, she was able to recognize that and she apologized. But if she was working with someone, if she had a therapist she could call, Instead of screaming and kicking the son out, she calls the therapist and says, I'm, I'm going to do all this. And the therapist says, well, 
I understand you're mad. Let's talk through this for a second. The kid doesn't get kicked out. The kid doesn't relapse, right? So in those moments, you have to remember that you are also going through trauma. And that means having someone that you can talk to because you can't help others if you aren't helping yourself, right? That's That's why on the airplane, they tell you to put the mask on yourself before you put it on someone else. Because if you're passed out, you can't put the mask on somebody. So help yourself and then you can be a better resource for that other person. I love that. Help yourself to be a better resource for the other person. Cause so many times we don't think about it. It's like, we always think about, we're so bent on trying to help everybody else and trying to do that until you leave yourself exhausted physically and emotionally. So you're no good to the person that you're trying to help right. because you are so beat up. And what you right. just said, it just goes along with everything we talk about. Cause I'm always talking about people seeing a counselor in relationships. I'm like, even if it's a situation where your spouse is having a problem or if they're going through something, you need to see a counselor as well. So you can make sure that you're at your best. So I love the fact that you're like, you still need to see a counselor because this is traumatic for you, even though you may not be the person who's experiencing the addiction or the mental illness. I love that. Uh, We are going through that here with my wife's family where uh, she's got a a family member who's going through a traumatic um, health issue. And, you know, my wife is constantly working with her therapist on her own feelings around this because, you know, nobody else, sadly, in our in this family really feels empowered or, or, or um, comfortable talking to therapists. And I hate that. I mean, that's such an old stigma, right? Yeah, oh, if you talk is. to a therapist, you must have. It's ridiculous. That being said, my wife has a much more healthy relationship with that idea. And so she spends a lot of time talking to her therapist about how she can cleanse this and be of better service to those other family members because all of them, I don't need a therapist. And then what do they do? They dump it all on my wife, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I don't need a therapist. I'm dealing with it fine. No, you're not. You're treating, you know, in this case, it's my wife as your therapist. So in that moment, my wife it tries to get them to go see the therapist. It doesn't always, it doesn't work. And so what does she do? She makes sure that she's in a better place to be that receptacle by dealing with that stuff with her therapist. So, you know, if, if you pass it down the line, nobody, you can't, we as humans cannot keep things bottled in. It does oh, not yeah. work. It comes out somewhere. And if you, if you can't realize where it's coming out, you need to take a step back, do a little mindfulness and realize where is that coming out? Because it's hurting something, you just aren't perceptive of what it's hurting. And if you have a therapist, that person gets to be that receptacle and they can help you deal with it in a safer and healthier way. So definitely go see a therapist. I like that because when you're talking about seeing a therapist, I know, like I tell people all the time, I'm like, even if you want to see a therapist because you see that you're procrastinating and you're not working on what you need to do. You should still see a therapist. I love therapy. I'm just going to be honest. It's one of those things. It's like, you can go talk to someone who is not judgmental. They're not telling you what to do. They can ask you questions, help you figure out what you need to do. I find it to be like relaxing. Like I think it's the best thing ever. And I'm also from a family where therapy is seen as like a, actually not even a, it's not even a resort. Okay. My family like no one really does therapy now the younger generation we're starting to be like okay and since I do have a master's in psychology I understand the importance of therapy so I'm all for it but no I understand my family's the same way it's like they when you especially when I look through my family history there's so much hidden secrets and so much stuff you're just like really y'all I mean it goes from generation to generation and you're just like wow if y'all had just got help 
or seeing somebody <laughs> or talk to somebody, you could have eliminated a lot of the dysfunction in the family. And I know everyone has dysfunction that they don't want to talk about, but I do think that if people have been brought up knowing that therapy is okay and that you don't have to be quote unquote crazy to go, like therapy is good for everybody. Like I always recommend it because I think it's a tool that we have to be the best version of ourselves and to help other people. So like, why wouldn't you take it? Well, that's an important message and one that's uh, important that we keep talking about. Yeah. I definitely enjoyed having you on the show. I love your story and I enjoyed our conversation. It was, it went, it, we talked about so much. So if anyone out there wants to get in contact with you or connect with you, how can they do this? Yep. You can find me at my website, jshiffman.com, which is J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. On social media, I am either Jay Schiffman or Choose Your Struggle Everywhere, uh, everything from TikTok to LinkedIn. And um, the Choose Your Struggle podcast is everywhere you get your podcast, wherever you're listening right now. Click over, search Choose Your Struggle and subscribe today. I'd really appreciate it. The song we're going to listen to today is called Can I Talk to You? And I chose this song specifically for this episode because in the interview, Jay and I talk a lot about mental health. And the song is about a woman who's struggling with depression and she's looking for someone to talk to, even though she's realizing she's pushing people away. Here's the song, Can I Talk to You?
that in the podcast, I would like to thank you guys so much for hanging out with me today. It really means a lot, especially on our name change episode. You guys have been with me this whole time, and I just want to say thank you so much for listening and for hanging out with me for these past few years on the Music and Vibes podcast, but also thank you for coming along and hanging out with me here on Music and Therapy podcast. I also want to remind you guys to share, follow, and like. Now, you can share this episode with a friend or a family member, anyone who you think this episode can help. Please feel free, please feel free to share this episode. I also want to encourage you to not just share it, but go ahead and follow me on Spotify. I am there. You can hear all the latest episodes on Spotify, so you can go follow me there. And then you can hear all the new episodes that we have. You can also subscribe to the podcast and other platforms. All you have to do is hit the subscribe button and you will see every new episode that we have. Now listen, I'm just going to tell you this. It's going to be a secret, but I'm going to try to put out at least a couple extra episodes every now and then. And in order for you to hear it, because I probably won't post it on our Facebook page or in our group. So in order for you to hear this, you have to go and subscribe or you have to like or follow me on Spotify. So go ahead and do that so I can make sure you guys are getting all of this information and can hear the latest podcast that I put out. I also want to take a moment to let you guys know that we did have a contest going on and all you had to do to win the contest or have a chance to win the contest, I should say, is join our Facebook group. So for those of you who joined the Facebook group, congratulations. I'm glad. Thank you so much. And what I will do is all the people who join, I will go ahead and put your name in the drawing, which I already have, and I'll just pick a name and pick a winner. So sometime this afternoon, go to our Facebook group page and go to our Facebook page, and you can see who won that $50 gift card for Amazon. If you guys want to contact me, you know how to do it. Just go to our show notes, I can be contacted on Facebook. We have a Facebook group where you can contact me, you can message me, ask me questions. I am there and I can't wait to interact with you. You can also leave me a message um, on Instagram. Just give me a DM and we can talk there. Or you can just send me a message on Facebook, however you want to do it. I also have our website there, but all of this information is in the show notes. So don't worry if you don't know where to go. It's in the show notes. All you have to do is go to the show notes and I have a section that says join me on social media. So all you have to do is go ahead and join me on social media. I'm also going to put Jay's information there. So if you need to get in contact with him, you know what to do. All right. I think that it's all. Um, I can't think of anything else to tell you guys, but if you want to contact me, you know how to get in contact with me and you know how to get in touch with me. All right. Well, that's all. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you later. And I hope you guys have an amazing week and a wonderful weekend. Bye. Looking from the inside out, it seems like we are.